Okay, when we had met last week, we had uh, witnessed the opening of the fourth seal. Uh, That was in the first part of chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Uh, We begin tonight looking, beginning with verse 8, which is the second half of uh, that chapter 6. We begin with verse 9. Um, we'll be looking at the fifth seal and uh, looking at the souls under the altar, uh, which continues to picture the suffering and persecution that will take place in this tribulation period. I think we will find here that the fifth seal does not present any action but rather it shows the result of some action. In the first four seals, we saw the judgment develop. But in the fifth seal, we are allowed to see only the results of what happens when they open that fifth seal. And so under the altar there, John sees the souls of those who have already been slain, and we are left only to imagine the suffering that they went through. Look at that. eighth verse with you as uh, John says and I looked and behold that was the last verse verse 9 when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held no doubt we know the history of redemption uh, has been written in the blood of martyrs from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. And even in modern times, we have seen uh, many examples of, of martyrdom. Certainly the Chinese believers who dared to meet together despite the communist law, uh, there were martyrs there. There were also the Russian believers who defied their authorities and, and, and went out and got their own Bible. Uh, there have been other martyrs. And then what God's people, the Jews, went through. Certainly one modern example of martyrdom is Hitler's persecution and extermination of the Jews in Europe, which was so great that we're told the Jewish population of the world was probably reduced to less than the number of Jews who left Egypt under Moses. Last week we saw that the living creatures in the opening of the first four seals there in verses 1 through 8, are connected with the unseen power behind the human agents of persecution upon this earth. And so now here we learn the last uh, three seals to come that are yet to be opened. Uh, we'll present an even more ominous picture as God begins to intervene personally in the affairs of men on this earth. This pattern of four and three will also be found when we begin to look at the trumpets and the bowls, uh, that judgment. In each case, the last three judgments will be worse than the, the previous four judgments that we go through. So John tells us that at the end of it all, uh, at the end of what he's going through now, the end of it has not yet come. There are still those who would be killed. There would be more martyrs in the future. 
But the souls under the altar provide a picture of the untold suffering and persecution that will take place during this tribulation. And so we will examine their martyrdom in several ways. First of all, we look at the context of these martyrs. Because the question arises as to who are the martyrs? Who are these people that their soul is under that altar, uh, under the altar there? First of all, we need to remember that the church of Jesus Christ has already been raptured. So these martyrs are not from the church age. Secondly, since the martyrs ask for judgment upon those who dwell on the earth, it's obvious that their murders are still the living. This would strongly suggest that these martyrs have come from the tribulation itself, from the tribulation scene there on earth, and they are faithful saints martyred in the early part of the tribulation period. No doubt they are probably casualties of those first four seals that were open. You remember when we met last week, we discussed the treaty that was to take place between Israel and the Antichrist. Well, folks, when the church is taken away, God is going to deal with Israel once more. And Israel as a nation will be saved. Many Jews will turn to God and reject the Antichrist during this tribulation period. And because of this, the Antichrist will make their blood run down like river. Many of them will also be martyred. And so we may ask who or how will these people be saved during the tribulation? If there are no believers left on earth at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, how are these people going to be saved? How are they going to be martyrs? How are there going to be other people that are added uh, to that, that scene in heaven where those who have uh, persevered will one day be? We know that God is going to have two witnesses, and we'll talk about that later on in the study. It's, I think it comes in about the 13th chapter. Somehow there's going to be 144,000 Israelites sealed for God's service during this period. We'll see that in chapter 7, verse 4. So hold on, we'll get to that tonight. However, there's also been a suggestion of an additional way called a silent witness. Because it's been pointed out that there's going to be millions of Bibles still left on this earth after the rapture. Considering the situation that's going to be here on earth, there will no doubt be many who will be constrained to pick up these Bibles and to read them. And, that might even be, and they might even be willing to give their testimony for the Word of God and even give their lives as they <laughs> seek to persuade the world that the calamities... It is suffering or judgments from God. And what will happen after they are saved? Well, martyrdom will be as common then as it is uncommon today. Those who trust in the Lord at that time will be called upon to demonstrate their faith often with their lives. So having seen the context, we also need to see the cause of their martyrdom. The martyrdom... The martyrs of Revelation 6 were slain for the same reason that John was exiled. If we remember back in the first chapter, verse 9, John said he was on, on the Isle of Patmos because of the Word of God. 
and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the word of their testimony is very likely a reference to the words of judgment they will preach. And as the events of the tribulation begin to intensify, those blood-bought believers will begin to warn others there of even more severe judgment to come. They will preach repentance and judgment, and they will be killed for their message. These saints have been sacrificed upon the altar of their devotion to God. (coughs) When we get to Revelation, the 19th chapter, we'll learn who will receive the mark of the beast, and we know that that mark is the, the mark of 666. We'll suffer eternal judgment at the hand of God. But converse is also true. Those who refuse to use this mark or receive this mark, they're going to suffer the wrath of the Antichrist. Remember that with the rapture of the church, the restraint of the Holy Spirit has been removed. The world rulers of that day will view followers of Christ as objects upon which they can vent their anger and their rebellion against God. And so having looked at the context of the martyrs, those who suffered after remaining on earth after the rapture, we saw the cause of the martyrs, that they began to warn others of the impending severe judgment to come. And so now we see the consequences of the martyrdom. As the fifth seal is opened there in chapter 9, or in verse 9 of chapter 6, the scene shifts from earth back to heaven as John is seeing it. A vision of those who are going to be martyred for their faith. They are described as being under the altar in keeping with the fact that the blood of the Old Testament sacrifice was poured out under the altar. The pouring of the blood was a sign that the sacrifice had been completed and the effects of the sacrifice was in place. So as John watches, he hears them cry out with a loud voice asking, why God has not judged those who took their lives. Well, the very fact that they are under the altar is an indication of their justification. They are protected by the blood of Jesus Christ and are covered or justified in God's sight. And so now we hear the cry of their martyrdom. This evil-inspired cry of these martyrs that we see there in verse 10 is more evidence that they are not church-age sufferers. You see, the cry of the church age martyr is the cry we saw from Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, when he cried out, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And so if they were living in the church age, their cry for vengeance would be very improper. Yet we have to remember what these folks have gone through. The flames, the wild beast, the sadistic torture which they suffered, so we may want to hold our criticisms of their complaining. However, we must also remember that this is the day of judgment of God and the age of grace has closed. We do know that when these martyrs address the Lord, they used a name for him not found in any other passage in Revelation. The word translated as the word Lord here in this section is the Greek word despotis which we get our word despot, and it implies supreme authority, 
absolute power, sovereign control, and shows God's absolute control over all the affairs of men in the world. In verse 11, we find the comfort of the martyrdom. Revelation 6, 11 is the Lord's answer to, the choir, to their cry. He's basically saying, be patient. The cup of iniquity is not yet full. There in verse 9 and in verse 11, we see a picture of the compassionate heart of a loving God. We find there are three things that speak of comfort for these martyrs. The first one is that they are given a refuge. We see that in verse 9. They're under the altar. This speaks of protection. Nobody can get through the blood of Christ to harm them anymore. Secondly, they're giving rest, as we see in verse 11. When these martyrs ask how long it's going to be until they are avenged for their death, they are told it will take a short period of time for the fulfillment of God's program and that there are still other martyrs that is going to be added to their number before there's a final restitution. And last of all, they're given a robe. God, in his gracious love and mercy, rewards each individual martyr a robe. This gift from the Lord causes us to ask a very interesting question. What kind of bodies do these martyrs have? We're told there were souls underneath the altar. What does a soul look like? We're told in verse 9 that there are souls. We're not told really what kind of description is given for a soul that's under the altar. But you see, these are saints who died during the tribulation, and it's clear from Scripture they will not receive their own resurrection bodies until the end of the, re- of the tribulation. In Revelation 20, verses 4 through 5, it indicates that there will be a special resurrection for all tribulation saints at the very end. So we have to wait for that. Various scholars have been divided as to whether saints who die actually receive temporary bodies in heaven prior to the resurrection body or whether only their spiritual beings are in heaven before the resurrection. One scholar suggested the fact that since they have robes, it indicates they must have some kind of body. However, it's not an earthly body, nor is it the resurrection body that Christ spoke of having after his resurrection. Perhaps they are temporary bodies to be replaced with the resurrection body which will last for eternity, given when Christ returns. So given all that information, we know that God does have a plan. And here there are three applications concerning God that we can look at. First of all, we said that God has a plan that includes each detail. I think Revelation 9 and 11 strike a death blow to the idea of soul sleep. Because these souls are conscious and speaking. We should not be led astray by the use of the word sleep in connection with the death of the body. Folks, this is not soul sleep. We can understand more clearly when we read what Paul has to say there in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians. In 
1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, verses 14 through 16, Paul said, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here we are told two things about the resurrection of believers. First of all, we learn they rise from the grave. And second of all, God will bring them from Christ when he returns. So there's only one way to explain how they're going at the same time both rise from the grave and be brought from heaven. It means you have to realize the soul and the body are separated in death. Therefore, sleep is applied only to the believer's body, which goes to the grave and awaits resurrection. Sleep is never applied to the soul of the believer that goes to heaven. So first of all, God has a plan that covers every detail. And we see that God has a purpose that explains each of the delays that they seem to be seeing at this time. You will notice the Lord would not answer the martyr's prayer for vengeance yet because the, <clears throat> the cup of iniquity was not yet full. The time before the retribution was measured as a little while. There will still be some fellow servants and believers who had to suffer martyrdom before God could act. Surely this proves that God ordains the details. Mm. Nothing can touch the believer unless he passes through the will of God. Right. There, is no, there is a definite plan for the life of everyone. One of God's children, Job, the first chapter, verse 10 says, He has cast a hedge around us for our protection. So first of all, we saw that God has a plan. We know that He has a purpose. And last, we see that God has a program that extends to each dispensation. And the hour of God's great judgment upon this earth and upon those who have rejected Him, He, will, he still holds out the plan of salvation for those who believe. Even in the dark hour, there are still those who will embrace Him. Even in the dark hour, we'll see that that, that he's, all, he's still calling them to come to him. And now you see in this dispensation, there are those Jews who acknowledge their Messiah. And it will be the same in that day, multiplied many times over. So we come to verse 12 there, and we find that the sixth seal is opened. Uh, in this verse, it reveals an enormous conclusion of nature which devastates the earth and brings terror everywhere. It begins there in that sixth chapter in the verse 12. Where it says, John says he looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became the, the black blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late fruit. When it is shaken by a mighty wind, and the skies receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, 
every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? It would be hard to paint a a scene more frightening than this one that John has described here. Here we see a cataclysmic earthquake. We see the sun is becoming black. The moon is becoming as blood. The stars are falling out of the sky. The heavens are being rolled back as a scroll. The mountain islands of the sea are being moved. Folks, it's now probable that this is probably with the opening of the sixth seal halfway through the tribulation. We had up to this point open five of the seven seals on the scroll of God, which is a title to the deeds of the earth. And that first seal introduced us to the world's uh, final dictator, Satan's Antichrist. The second seal revealed a rider on a red horse and brought us face to face with war and bloodshed. The third seal was a black horse which pictured famine and death. The fourth seal uncovered the pale horse and revealed a plague of death which would fill the earth. The fifth seal presented the mass murder of the saints of God and martyrdom. All these judgments are largely the results of evil in the hearts of men. And now the judgment described in the sixth seal is divine. It is divine punishment inflicted on a sinful world. The events symbolized by these first six seals probably make uh, will take place in the first three and a half years or the seven years of the tribulation. And we can see some of the reasons for believing that this sixth seal brings us to the first half of the tribulation. I think there are three indicators for this timing. Revelation 6.17 refers to people crying out as a result of that sixth seal being broken. Their cry is, for the great day of His wrath has come. We will find Revelation 7, verse 1, speaks of the four winds of the earth being restrained until the 144,000 people can be sealed for protection. These winds represent the blown trumpets and the bowls. The interpretation here is clear that the next judgments are going to be more severe. The seventh seal includes the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets include the seven bowls indicating a progression of severity. Finally, the opening of the seventh seal, which gives us the blown trumpet, emerges and it is followed by the silence of one half hour in Revelation 8.1. This suggests an awesome foreboding sense of fear in view of what is to happen. And so we put all this together with Matthew 24, <clears throat> verses 15 through 21, which teaches that a marked incense of suffering, increase of suffering comes after uh, the setting up of the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. We see that this occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. And at this particular time, 
that Israel begins to experience a marked change in the attitude of the Antichrist. And almost overnight, he shifts from being a friend to being a bitter enemy. Revelation 6.12 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. The Greek word for quake or quaking is seismos, upon which we get our uh, words uh, seismograph or seismology that uh, they use to measure earthquakes. Jesus prophesied three times that the earthquake described here in John would precede the day of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets consistently connected the quaking of the earth with the final judgment of the Lord. In fact, the Bible often associates the quaking of the earth with the judgment of the Lord. We find it in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. When the Lord came down uh, off of Mount Sinai to meet with, the, with uh, Moses' folks down there, uh, we're told that there was a, a great earthquake. In 6.12, it also says the sun became black as a sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. We know Jesus died on the cross. The whole earth became dark at midday. We know that when Egypt was judged, there was a blackness of night. That was the ninth plague that the Lord put on uh, the, the people there that was holding the people in Egypt. Uh, in order for them to be turned loose. And there was a darkness there for three days and three nights in that ninth plague. The prophet as well as as well said a darkness would occur at the beginning of the tribulation period. When such darkness occurs at the judgment of God, business and pleasure will cease Crime will multiply. Depression of the spirit will settle over the earth. The moon, which is reflected by the sun's light, will turn a ghastly red and will frighten even the boldest observer. And so in Revelation 6, verse 13, we read that the stars of heaven fall to the earth. And we need to understand that the word star here is the Greek word aster, and it refers to a luminous body's in the sky other than the sun and the moon. Clearly, these stars are not the distant stellar objects that we know as stars. The language of the text seems to denote more that they are meteorites, which uh, they're not what we commonly call uh, stars. When we see a star falling or a shooting star today, that is not the star they're talking about. In fact, scientists have long speculated about the probability of either past or future earth catastrophes will be caused by encountering a swarm of asteroids. Then in Revelation 6.14, we read the prophecy where the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. There are two possibilities uh, for this explanation for the scientific phenomenon. One is that the clouds of dust will Gradually, cloud will gradually spread across the sky, making it appear that the sky is being rolled up. The other is that the Earth's crust will be so disturbed by the impact of the asteroids that great segments of the crust will actually begin to slip 
and slide over the earth's mantle. And those living in the regions above, uh, seeing this shifting, will observe the heavens appearing to move in the opposite direction as if they're being rolled up. And finally, Revelation 6.14 says, And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. You see, John wrote these events from the Isle of Patmos. It must have indeed been a strange sensation. And so the shaking of the earth, the darkening of the sky, the falling of the stars, rolling back of the heavens, moving the mountains and the islands will produce a tremendous response to all earth dwellers. Moving on to the 15th through the 17th verse there in chapter 6, where we will report that a cry will go up from the kings, the captains or the commanders, the great ones, the rich, the strong, slave and free. In fact, the whole fabric of human society will be terrified. We see three timeless truths emerge from this text. Certainly the first truth is sin's horror. No one is exempt. God will work his vengeance upon all sin. For as the text says in verse 17, the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. The second truth is sin's hiding. When the day of the Lord comes, John sees people seeking someplace to hide. You see, the terrible thing about sin is that it makes a person a fugitive from God. And the supreme thing about the work of Jesus Christ is that it puts a man into a relationship with God and he no longer seeks to hide. But then there's a third truth. We have sin's horror. We have sin's hiding. We also have sin's hardness. You see, instead of calling upon God, these evil men try to hide from the wrath of the Lamb by seeking to escape in death. The problem with that is that death is only changes the state of existence. Mm-hmm. Judgment still awaits those who have rejected Christ. Mm-hmm. So they begin to cry out and they begin to pray. Folks, one of the most amazing truths of the book of Revelation is the hardness of men's hearts. Judgment actually seems to harden them instead of softening them. For as the judgment becomes more severe and the intensity of God's wrath is multiplied throughout the book, the rebellion and the stubbornness of sinful people actually increases. The terrible suffering we will see described in the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments of Revelation 9 should strike terror in the hearts of those remaining. The pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath upon the earth in Revelation 16 should cause them to turn to God and repent of their sin. However, Revelation 19 describes the coming of Christ and His army to this earth. He will not have any difficulty getting the evil men of this earth to the battlefield. For they are so filled with hatred, rebellion, that they are gladly come to fight. And they will all gather under the Antichrist in rebellion against God and go off to fight only to be annihilated. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Not only 
Sin not only kills the sinner, but it seeks through that sinner to kill everyone in its path. There's something insidiousness about sin. It hardens the heart. It calluses the soul. Makes men insensitive to the judgment of God. This hardness turns into more sin. The sin is added to sin until you cannot recover. No doubt there is a message there to all of us. Do not become insensitive to sin. But ask God to make you just naively good. Pray that you won't let the threshold of sin in your life be brought down by the culture in which you live. Pray that you will be sensitive to the slightest inroad of adversity in your life because of sin. And when it is finished, brings forth death. James, the first chapter, verses 15 and 16 says, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings death. And so we begin to look at chapter 17. Here we see God's people, the Jews, actually persevering during the judgment of the Great Tribulation. And between the 6th and the 7th seal, there is an interlude in in Revelation 7. It really does not advance the narrative of the book, but it's very important to the understanding of this hour of God's judgment. The first six seals of the title deed to the earth have now been removed. Now God is about to send 144,000 people in a revival. Folks, there's never been a more persecuted people than the Jews. And even today, even among some Christians, there is a system through that divorce thought that divorces the Jewish nation from any further part in the plans and purposes of God. But careful study will illustrate the impossibility of removing God's elective purposes for Israel from the Scripture. It cannot be done without destroying a vast portion of God's Word. John records two visions in this chapter which reveals God's work in His people, Israel. Verse 1 begins to set the great revival. The picture we see here in chapter 7 is sketched against the dark background of dread and gloom when the sixth seal is revealed. In reality, this chapter is located between the beginning of sorrows, which is in Matthew 24, verse 8, and the great tribulation, which we see in Matthew 24, verse 21. Matthew 24, verse 8. There has been a description there of all that is, that is going to take place. And Christ says that many of you will be deceived. And he says there in verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And as you go down to verse 21, and he says, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, not ever shall be again. So, you know, we need to understand that the, the word of the tribulation, the forecast of the tribulation didn't just wait till Revelation to appear. 
We find that in the Old Testament. We find that in the Old Testament in in the other writers there. Verse 1 begins to set the great revival. The picture we see here in chapter 7 is sketched against the dark background of dread and gloom, which the sixth seal revealed. This chapter is located between those two verses uh, as you look there in Matthew. There are two separate visions in this text, and they are marked by the Greek phrase metatonta adam, which is translated after these things I saw. The first vision is in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, and it's a scene that takes place on earth. The second vision is in Revelation chapter 7, verse 19, uh, verse 9 through 17, and it's a scene that takes place in heaven. We see the first vision reveals the 144,000 representatives of the godly remnant of Israel. It is Jewish in in focus and relates to the sealing of the servants on earth. The second vision tells of a great multitude from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is Gentile in focus and reveals the glory of the saints in heaven. As John is given the first vision, he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. This is now not a square earth, but rather reflects the four quadrants like on the compass or the four directions. We see this is how the weatherman may say that the the wind is coming from the east or from the west. John reports the wind restrained in all four directions there in verse 1. The wind in Scripture is often the providential agencies employed by God to execute His purposes. Now here until the elect servants are safe, these winds will not be allowed to blow. And once again, we are impressed by the tremendous power dedicated to the angels in God's end program. Beginning in verse 2 and going through verse 8, we find these sealed servants of the great revival. We're told there in verse 2 that the four angels controlling the four winds of the earth are now joined by our fifth angel who comes from the east and instructs the four angels not to hurt the earth, not to hurt the sea, not to hurt the trees until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. This reference can be better understood by reading in Revelation chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. This reference will simply tell us what happens when the angels are free to actually hurt the earth. But for now, they're instructed not to hurt the earth until God has sealed the servants. Some have suggested that this fifth angel is Jesus Christ himself. You notice the text actually says he ascended from the east. In many cases, in any case, the voice is loud and authoritative and reaches the four corners of the earth. And So what is this seal that he's going to place on these servants? The only information given in the text is that it is served to protect the servants of God from judgment on earth. This is not the first time God has sealed some of his people from judgment and speculation. In Exodus, the 12th chapter, we're told that God sealed the firstborn of all the Jewish families who were faithful in applying the blood to the doorpost as they were instructed. There's also the seal of the Antichrist mentioned in Revelation 13 
that seal will be branded on the forehead or on the hand of those who have sworn allegiance to this false Christ. According to the revelation, without the seal, it will be impossible to purchase food or to do business. Eventually, those who are unwilling to be marked will be murdered for their refusal. In that future day, Satan will have his seal followers, but God will have his seal witnesses, and the seal of the living God is an external mark. The seal will also be a a moral badge. These people are described as servants of God in Revelation 7.3. They have not bowed to the Antichrist and have devoted themselves to God. We find in Joel, the second chapter, verses 28 through 32, the prophet Joel seemed to coordinate the judgment of the last days with a special endowment of the Holy Spirit, saying, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Therefore, if a man has a seal of God upon him, he has power, he has unction, and presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. It's hard to imagine the impact of 144 spirit-filled Jews would have on their world. Their Pentecostal power would enable them to have great courage and bravery as they witness to the Word and testimony to salvation in Jesus Christ. A genuine, devout, converted Jew and put a Gentile to shame in their bold witness. We know 12 spirit-filled Jews turned their world upside down. Imagine the magnitude of the revival that would take place during the tribulation. So who are these who are sealed? There's no doubt in chapter 7, verse 3, this is one of the most important and at the same time controversial verses in the entire Bible. Before we say who they are, we need to look at who they are not. First of all, we know they are not the people of the multitude, which is mentioned in verse 9, because these sealed servants are numbered. They are from Israel. They are on the earth. They are preserved in tribulation and have not yet been rewarded. Now the ones mentioned in verse 9, the multitude is unnumbered. It is from every nation, every kindred, every people, every tongue, and it is in heaven. They are removed from tribulation, and they have palms, and they have robes. Likewise, the seals are not the church. Remember, again, the church is already in heaven. They were raptured between chapters 3 and chapter 4. You have observed them in the presence of the elders there in heaven. Added to that, they're not the Seventh-day Adventists. The Adventists (laughs) believe these 144,000 are members of their church who are found observing the Jewish Sabbath when the Lord comes back, and thus they are raptured up to glory. (coughs) Additionally, they're not the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're all striving to become one of the elect. At one time, it was taught that all Jehovah's Witnesses were among this number, where their membership has swelled to more than 144,000. So now they teach that the 144,000 are just the overcomers. Their doctrine is a system of works based on a misapplication of this verse. No, the 144,000 is 
not made up of any of these that we've just mentioned. These 144,000 are all of the tribes of the children of Israel. The Holy Spirit actually names the names of these tribes so that there will be no doubt. And their mention is in chapter 7, verse 4 through 7, refutes the idea that the tribes of Israel are lost. <clears throat> we find that this list is listed 29 times in the Bible. These 12 tribes in the Bible. There are two tribes that are not included. There are the tribes of Dan and the tribes of Ephraim who are not mentioned here because they're excluded because of idolatry. These 144,000 are sealed for protection just as God gave the three Hebrew children and kept them alive in the fire so these sealed Hebrews will be kept alive and kept protected throughout the time of the tribulation. When we get to chapter 9, we will see that specific instruction <coughs> is given that the fifth blown trumpet is so is to harm only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These folks will also be sealed for power. They will be empowered to preach the gospel to their world. The result will be only to explain uh, in terms of the Holy Spirit and His infilling. The great multitude described in the last half of chapter 7 here is evidently the product of these great evangelistic preaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One more page, we'll be through. 144,000, they're sealed for protection, they're sealed for power, they're also sealed for promise. They are to enter the kingdom at the end of the tribulation to reign with Christ and His glorified church. They're kept alive during the tribulation in order to present when the millennium begins, thus fulfilling God's covenant promise to His people. Folks, the most obvious, the most important message derived from this passage would have to be that even in judgment, God is merciful. Yes. Each judgment of God from Noah to the judgment of God on God's own Son on our behalf reveals the mercy of God. It will get more intense, folks. And we will see that the uh, judgment will be more severe. Uh, I'm... Glad to be a part of the church. I don't even want to see it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for John. Lord, what he what it must have been going through his mind the whole time that he was seeing these visions. And we thank you that you gave him the the ability to present that to us that we might know, that we might share with others, Father that somehow, some way, we might present to them what this is saying to us, that they would turn away from sin and turn to You. Guide and direct us, Lord, as we go about our way, that we will be ambassadors, that we will be witnesses for You. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.